states like these and their terrorist allies constitute an axis of evil. Not merely peace in our time, but peace in all time. Continued cooperation for world peace. All those who have fought against oppression. This country deserves a break from politics and a permanent break. Talking about So we are joined now by Richard Fontaine, who's the CEO of the Center for New American Security in Washington, D.C. Richard, welcome. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. It's uh, nice to talk with you. It's very nice. Um, I'm actually really excited to have you on this podcast. Um, obviously, being a foreign policy podcast, our listeners are really interested in international security and in U.S. foreign policy in particular. And I, I really can't think of anyone better suited to comment on these issues than you. And so I really appreciate you you taking the time to be with us. Yeah, no problem. Um, b- before we get into the, the policy stuff, I was hoping that, that we could start with some uh, a bit of a more proper introduction. I mentioned right in the beginning that you are the CEO of CNAS. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you perhaps just want to tell us a bit about yourself and the work you do and also maybe uh, talk a bit about your background and, and how you ended up working in, in foreign policy? Sure. Well, um, the Center for New American Security is a national security think tank in Washington, D.C., Um, It's a bipartisan uh, organization with Democrats and Republicans that are doing research and writing and thinking um, about tough policy issues and trying to formulate good uh, solutions to them, uh, to the most consequential national security and foreign policy issues we face, whether it's some of the regional issues in Europe and Middle East and Asia or defense issues or economic issues, tech issues, things like that. Um, We've got a pretty strong emphasis on bringing in voices from the next generation of national security leaders. And uh, I would be remiss if I didn't uh, mention that you have a slight connection to CNAS that you might want to remind people about. Well, it was uh, it was my very first uh, real foreign policy gig uh, when I was doing my exchange year in Washington. I think it was um, six years ago now. Um, and I spent the summer at CNAS. I was working for your colleague, Liz Rosenberg, who heads the energy, economics, and security team. Um, obviously, one of my best experiences ever. Um, you know, arriving in Washington and just being able to be part of this foreign policy world, uh, being the, the kind of the nerd that I am, I, I absolutely loved it. And, you know, I just want to mention, you know, the two reasons for that. One is obviously kind of what you mentioned, the, just the, the, how, how many issues you guys are working on and the kind of the, the brilliant people that work there, but also because it's just a really nice place to work. Um, I really enjoyed it. Um, I'm still in touch with a lot of old colleagues from that place. And I think it speaks to what kind of organization CNS is that every time I've been back to Washington uh, since then, I, I meet up my old colleagues for lunch or a drink. Oh, that's great. Yeah, that's really good. It's good to hear. Um, and I think we went to a Washington Nationals baseball game too, didn't we? We did. Uh, my first ever baseball game. Um, I still have a photo from that, uh, actually. And I was introduced to baseball, but also to, I think it was a chili dog. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and I was kind of worried because I didn't really understand the rules at all. But then I kind of figured out that the whole point was to 
enjoy the game um, and kind of drink beer and eat hot dogs. Uh, exactly. It was, it was That's very nice. <laughs> thing. And, and, you know, as long as you don't say, you know, when are they going to score a touchdown or something like that, then you're fine. You know, I, I think uh, I didn't screw up completely. I think uh, I think I behaved. Um, yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> well, to answer your uh, question about my background. So before CNAS, I worked as the foreign policy advisor to Senator John McCain for about five years in the Senate. And then on the uh, 2008 presidential campaign and then uh, for the Senate Armed Services Committee. And before that, I had worked at uh, the State Department and on the National Security Council staff and um, on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. Um, you know, I got into this field. I, you know, I'd always been interested in international issues and things and, and politics and policy as well. And so I after college, I taught English in Japan for a year and then moved to Washington and looked for a job and ended up uh, starting out with the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. And one thing led to another. And now we're on this podcast. <laughs> now we're on this podcast. Yeah, um, that's great. Um, I mean, you, you, you mentioned this. You were uh, Senator McCain's foreign policy uh, advisor, obviously. Um, I think our listeners will, will, will know that name. He was I think you could describe him as this this towering figure in American politics, but but particularly um, in U.S. foreign policy and security uh, policy. Uh, Senator McCain tragically passed away about a year ago, right? That'd be two years in August, yeah. Two years in August, wow. Um, but you know, his his legacy is really alive in in terms of the um, the connections that he helped foster, uh, particularly across the the Atlantic. Um, you were his foreign policy advisor, in, in, including, as you said, during his presidential run uh, in, in 2008. I thought it might be an interesting point of departure uh, for this conversation. It, it would be really interesting to hear a bit about that experience, but also how you think U.S. policy has evolved since then. Um, over over this period of time, how would you describe America's foreign policy and, and how do you see America's role in the world uh, today? It's actually amazing how much has changed uh, since then. I mean, you know, we're talking 12 years ago, but at the time, the big issues were the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, the global war on terror, which was a top priority, if not the top priority of U.S. foreign policy. Um you know, in 2008, Russia had invaded Georgia, so that was a crisis. But um, Russia wasn't really seen as, you know, the, a, a major uh, adversary to the United States uh, at the time. Uh, China was always, you know, in the background and things like that. But again, the other issues were more important. Certainly by Election Day in 2008, the economy, because the global financial crisis had started in September, became the number one issue. But until that time, uh, a lot of it was focused on the greater Middle East and the problems of terrorism and stability and democracy and the, the Bush freedom agenda and all those other kinds of things. And that's so far from where we are now, where, you know, the, the big uh, focus of a lot of people in Washington is on great power competition with China and with Russia, um, a very strong emphasis on the economic uh, issues and technology issues associated with both those countries. Um, you know, a lot of some um, disappointment with the the retrenchment of democracy around the world and um, and you know a real desire by both President Obama and now President Trump to withdraw 
the American military footprint from Iraq, Afghanistan, other places, but not entirely with success, uh, but certainly not with the kind of urgency and priority that attended the war on terror and the wars that we were in at the time. So a pretty dramatic change in the focus of U.S. foreign policy over the past 12 years or so. And uh, I want to come back to a few of those particular points in a bit. But obviously, um, given the situation we're we're currently in, uh, we've talked quite a bit about COVID-19 in previous episodes on this in this podcast. And we've been trying to figure out how, if at all, this virus and the global response to it has has affected um, kind of the, the international security scene. So so maybe if you want to share some of your views on how this pandemic that we're going through has affected global politics. And, and related to that, um, we have actually a question from a listener, and he's asked us, um, will you think the greatest foreign policy challenge facing America will be um, uh, as a result of this pandemic? Well, the first question of what COVID has changed you know, part of this is still a story that's being written, so it's unclear, but it's illuminated a few things. One is uh, just how hard it is going to be for the United States and China to find areas of cooperation. I mean, even until very recently, even the, the most sort of claw-bearing China hawks generally said, well, as much as we're competing with China on in the military domain or on, you know, their One Belt, One Road projects or in the South China Sea or on technology, we should preserve some areas of cooperation, global warming, nonproliferation, global health was always seen as one of those areas where, you know, the United States and China clearly have a shared interest in not seeing pandemics break out. Um, but yet when COVID breaks out, this has not become an area of cooperation between the United States and China, but rather yet another vector for competition between the United States and China, which doesn't make one very optimistic about the ability to compete and cooperate at the same time. I think there's some differences with some of those other issues that might make them more viable for cooperation. But generally speaking, it's pretty striking how quickly um, this became just one more area, uh, especially with the Chinese trying to sort of get strategic advantage rather than an area for cooperation. Um, So that's one, you know, uh, two is it's obviously making countries rethink um, the the risks of globalization, whether it's integrated supply chains and just-in-time production and uh, single-source uh, production overseas and, and things like that. But also, you know, countries, we quickly saw this kind of every country for itself response. So, you know, even liberal countries enmeshed in the European Union, like Germany, suddenly were barring the exports of medical supplies, even to other countries in the Schengen zone. And and we're closing their borders to you know French and Italians and things like that, um, and that's that's a pretty striking um, inward lookingness, which I think is going to last for a while. And then I think the final thing that this shows uh, is what happens when you don't have very strong American leadership on some of these transnational issues. You know, there, there's always been that sort of talk you know, here and there of what would it look like if, you know, there was a big international crisis that required a lot of countries to get together and the United States just decided to sit it out, you know, who, so would Europe step in and sort of organize the agenda and countries around it, you know, would China take as its opportunity, the ability to, you know, lead the world with the middle powers like Australia and, you know, others kind of 
South Korea team up? And the answer is none of that happened. The United States has been so inwardly focused in part because of the Trump administration's governing philosophy, but a lot of it just because of the scale of the crisis at home. So, you know, the G7, the G20, they've issued statements, but they haven't really done anything uh, collaboratively and, and very little has happened uh, multilaterally. And, and I think it shows that if the United States doesn't organize countries and pull them together in common cause, it's very, very unlikely and possibly impossible for even other well-meaning countries to, to do it on their own, uh, which I think tells us something about the era that we're going to head into here. It's 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 really interesting, Richard, to to hear you say this because because I'm reminded of, I mean, when I when I moved to Washington to to study foreign policy, the the big debate, if you will, was always at that time. You know, is there a power shift going on in international politics, and more specifically, is the United States going through a period of relative decline in its international power. That was the big debate. And, and the assumption was always that if it was true that the U.S. was indeed going through this period of, of decline or whatever you want to call it, it, was, it would be the result of kind of external factors. So there was a rising China or there was the financial crisis. Um, it was never this assumption that maybe this would rather come to be a question of an active choice to kind of decrease the commitment um, overseas. And, and it's kind of been interesting to follow the, the domestic debate in the United States of, you know, what should the U.S. role be um, internationally. You... Um, you wrote an article for for the Atlantic recently. Um, it was about the what you called the new Atlantic Charter. So, so based on on, on what you just said, um, do you want to say something about that article and maybe talk a bit about what kind of leadership you think would be needed to kind of turn this crisis around? Yeah, sure. Well, um, for the less nerdy among the listeners, um, the Atlantic Charter was an agreement and really a statement of principles. It was issued by the United States and Britain in August of 1941. Um, Franklin Roosevelt and Winston Churchill got together on a ship off the coast of Canada and had a couple of days of talks. And then they issued this thing. And essentially, the framework of this document was to say, we're resolved to see the defeat of the Nazi tyranny. And when the Nazis are defeated, we're going to be in a post-war world. And that post-war world should not just be a return to the one that existed prior to this war, but rather something better. And here are the principles around which we would like to construct a post-war world. And that then in turn led to a bunch of the post-war institutions like the United Nations and NATO itself and, and, and other things. And fundamentally, um, we did, of course, have a very different second half of the 20th century than we did first half of the 20th century um, for, for the good of everybody. Um, and uh, the most striking thing or one of the striking things about that was this was issued in August of 1941. But the United States wasn't even at war at the time. The United States was not, of course, attacked until December 7th, 1941 at Pearl Harbor. So they were already starting to think about the shape of the post-World War and, and, and how to use this 
global trauma as an opportunity before we even entered the thing and starting to plan for the future. And so my point in this article was not to say that Boris Johnson and Donald Trump should get on a boat off the coast of Canada and issue a joint statement or something, but rather we should look for opportunity and trauma and that, you know, certainly people in the United States, preferably with, you know, our allies and like-minded democratic partners should think about what the principles are that we'd want to see come out of this. So some of them for me is, are fairly obvious. I mean, one of the big problems in our politics and in our societies is that the benefits of globalization have not been distributed evenly enough so as to maintain support for the overall net gains that globalization provides. Well, let's have as a principle that we can try to do something about that. Um, you know, similarly, there's a lot of uh, interference in the domestic affairs and politics of democratic countries. Let's do something about that. And you can imagine other ones. So I put a few of these principles on the table. But overall, the, the, the main point of the article was, you know, something better can come out of this world historical event, but only if we choose to do so and only if we choose to think about what it is that we want and to move toward it rather than be left with, you know, whatever scenario unfolds simply because of inertia. Um, that's that's so interesting. And, and, and one of the reasons why I found that piece uh, and, and what you just said to be so, so interested to pick up on is that throughout this crisis, you know, the, the assumption or the, the talk of the town, if you will, when you speak to people has always been this question of like, oh, when are we going to get back to to normal when will this thing be yeah. over and we can just go back to yeah. the normal and, and what you're alluding to here is that let's maybe not go back to the normal because we had a bunch of problems before this pandemic and maybe instead we should try to think about how we create a a better system better structures exactly i mean democracies especially the american democracy is not terribly good at uh making policies for the long run in the absence of crisis but as we have seen crisis can make all kinds of things possible. I mean, suddenly, you know, our, the U.S. Congress conjured $2 trillion uh, out of the air almost uh, in response to crisis in the scope, in the space of a week or something, right? Um, I mean, you could go all the way back to World War II and see how, you know, uh, the United States and and the and Britain and, and the Allies in three and a half years defeated fascist Italy, Nazi Germany, and Imperial Japan. I mean, you know, things can be done when democracies uh, feel a sense of crisis and urgency. And that's not a reason to go out and find yourself a crisis. But if you've had a crisis foisted upon you, it would be a terrible mistake not to use it to construct something better to generate the political will um, necessary to try to envision a better future rather than just saying, yeah, well, this will pass and then we can get back to the old problems instead of, you know, something something better. I think uh, an, an historical excellent um, example of, of what you just said is obviously the, the Marshall Plan, this massive uh, investment from the United States to really rebuilding uh, and Europe. And obviously the context here is that Europe was just in, in ruins after World War II. And what we had seen in earlier scenarios was, you know, the U.S. kind of oscillating between engaging with the world and focusing on kind of 
its own, if you will. And after World War II, really seeing the United States take that leadership to help rebuild Europe in particular, but also really building the foundation for a post-war international system and really taking the leadership uh, on, on kind of a lot of these structures that you mentioned, such as NATO, uh, international trade organizations, um, and so on. And I, I think it's fair to say that, you know, today, even before this, this current pandemic, a lot of folks would argue that these structures, you know, they're usually, usually called global governance structures, um, that they're starting to look increasingly shaky. And particularly here in Europe, a common criticism is that one of the key reasons for that is a decreasing commitment from the United States to the values that, that, that you were referring to earlier, multilateralism uh, and these international uh, institutions, whether that's, that's NATO, the United Nations or the World Health Organization. Um, do you think this criticism is fair and what do you think we can do on both sides of the Atlantic to try to strengthen this transatlantic relationship between the United States and the EU in particular? Yeah, I think it's part of the answer, but it's not the complete answer to what's going on. I mean, take the United Nations Security Council. You know, during the post-Cold War period, there was some um, really constructive things that the United Nations Security Council was able to do. And that was because the United States and Russia were not at loggerheads the way they were for most of the Cold War. When you have the great powers locked in competition or worse, confrontation, the Security Council's paralyzed. We saw this for a couple of decades during the Cold War where the Security Council could do very little because the United States opposed everything the, the Soviet Union was going to do. The Soviet Union opposed everything the United States was going to do. And now you have an even more complicated situation where you have China in there that is no longer passive. Um, and, and so that's, a, a, that's an issue that flows from the structure of the institution and the structure of international politics. Even if the United States wanted to be fully, completely committed to the UN Security Council, whatever that would mean, Russia and China would still have a veto. Um, and so, you know, that makes things challenging. Then you have other aspects of this problem. I mean, if you look at, for example, the World Bank, I mean, for a long time, the World Bank was basically the only game in town when it came to capital investment and infrastructure and in developing countries. Now it's by far not the only game in town. You have the Asian Infrastructure Development Bank that China's capitalized along with others. We also have a huge amount of private sector capital and things like that. So, you know, the World Bank is not as influential today as it was, not because of a lack of American commitment, but because there are alternatives uh, to the World Bank in terms of, you know, the, the providing um, capital infusions for infrastructure and things like that. Um, so a lot of it depends on what you're talking about. I mean, certainly the United States is not going to strengthen the World Health Organization by uh, removing its membership and funding. Um, and so I think that's a, a mistake and particularly at a time like this, I, I tend to think that if the, an, that the answer to these, um, smaller organizations in global governance, like the WHO, if we're worried that China's got too much influence in these places, which sounds right from reading the reports, the issue is the, the, the answer is not to just abandon the field to even more Chinese influence, but rather to contest that, to, to, you know, be influential ourselves. And that, that is an area where I think 
greater American commitment could help. But, you know, I, I think it's more complicated than just the United States has lost interest in global governance and therefore global governance is becoming less effective. Um, I think that's a good answer with some important nuances as well. Um, if we focus in for a second just on the relationship to to Europe and this uh, this relationship that we usually call the, the transatlantic partnership, um, one of our questions asks if you think that there is a risk um, that that relationship will become more, uh, I guess you could say, fragmented and, and that we would see instead a turn to a lot of bilateral relationships. Um, do, do you think that's a risk at all? And, and, and do you have any thoughts on why we need to have a strong transatlantic partnership today? Because, I mean, the World War II was, you know, 70 years ago. Yeah, I'm um, optimistic. Maybe I'm the only one these days, but I'm optimistic about the transatlantic relationship. And in part, it's because I'm getting older. <laughs> and uh, and so, you know, I, I hear now people saying, oh, my God, the transatlantic relationship is in crisis. Look at the way Trump and Merkel deal with each other. Look at this, this you know, this drive for burden sharing in NATO. You know, uh, look at the rhetoric. You know, things have never been this bad. This is irreparable. We will never recover. It, you know, this is it never will be the same again. But I heard all of that during the war in Iraq too. Um, and during the war in Iraq, uh, you know, Gerhard Schroeder ran for re-election on an explicitly anti-American platform. Jacques Chirac was offering, uh, you know, increased aid to countries that would vote against the United States and the UN Security Council. And, and at the time, people said nothing will ever be the same. This is terrible. And now people say, well, Iraq, that was one issue. But this is totally different this time. And, and of course, uh, you can go back over time, whether it was the deployment of Pershing II missiles to Europe or Nixon closing the gold window and the destruction of Bretton Woods economic institutions or the Vietnam War that saw, you know, millions of protesters on the streets of Europe or whatever from you know, every 20 years-ish, there's a major flare-up uh, in transatlantic relations. And guess what? Every single time they've survived, NATO has survived, it hasn't lost members, it's actually added them, you know, things like that. And the question, of course, is why? And this gets back to the second part of the question. The, the, the answer is because good things tend to endure because they're good. And the, a strong transatlantic relationship is good because... Uh, all of the strong uh, European and North American allies have a shared interest in not ever seeing the eruption of, of war in, on the European continent uh, again. Um, they all have a, an interest in seeing democracy uh, prevail and be protected as a system of government. Um, and the bottom line is in the United States, when something happens, the first calls are to Europe uh, for out of area military operations and things like that. And that's before you even get to the scale of the transatlantic economic relationship. I mean, people forget that Europe's the biggest economy in the world. So, um, you know, I, it's, it's a crisis in, today in transatlantic relations, but it's one more crisis, the likes of which I think we have seen before and we unfortunately will see again. But because of the, because we all have an interest in this prevailing, uh, I think it's going to, I think it will continue and we'll get through this. I wrote a piece for the Atlantic a couple of years ago called um, NATO will survive Trump. And that was trying to make that, that, <laughs> that kind of point. And of course, some of the reactions were mixed between people saying, yes, absolutely right. And people saying, no, you don't understand the gravity of the situation. 
And uh, but I was trying to remind people we've been through not exactly the same thing, but some things that are similar. Well, and 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 so far, um, uh, you've been proven uh, correct. <laughs> yeah. Well. Yeah. Exactly. So. Um, look. Look. Um, uh, I think that's a good call for optimism as well as a, a good reminder to us all that we can take the uh, the values that we cherish uh, for granted. Um, I want to, as a, maybe a, a, a final part here, um, talk um, briefly on a, a few of the recent developments uh, that we've seen in the United States, um, particularly following the death of uh, Mr. George Floyd um, a few weeks ago. And this is something that we discussed, uh, Sebelin and my co-host and I, on our last episode. And actually, as we did, I, I was reminded of of something that one of your CNAS colleagues, um, Robert Kaplan, had written, uh, which I think I, I, um, I quoted to you when we were kind of uh, emailing earlier, which is this thing he wrote that the American narrative is morally unresolvable because the society that saved humanity in the great conflicts of the 20th century was also a society built on enormous crimes, slavery and the extinction of the native in inhabitants. Um, I think what that speaks to is this, in one way, this, this tension uh, with uh, uh, American maybe politics, but maybe even American society, that there, there's so much good in what the United States has done internationally. And, you know, it's a nation founded explicitly on these ideas of, of freedom uh, and liberty. And at the same time, you have this, this history, but also continuation of uh, discrimination, of inequalities, of, of racism. Um, I wanted to ask you about this because you uh, you recently published a a short, but what I think was a very powerful message in support of those that are protesting for social justice in America. And you said that we can use this historic moment that we are now witnessing as the catalyst for a better future. So maybe as a last question, I was wondering if you want to maybe talk a bit about this and tell us what you would like to see come out of these protests that we are witnessing now. Sure. Well, um, to reinforce the point that you've drawn out here, the racial stain on America's conscience and the contradictions that generates have been present since America's founding. I mean, you know, the Declaration of Independence says all men are created equal, but it didn't actually mean that all men were created equal because it didn't mean enslaved men were created equal to white men. It didn't include women and arguably didn't include men who lacked property at the time. Uh, and, you know, Samuel Johnson in England said, you know, during the American Revolution, it's pretty odd for those Yankees to be clamoring for freedom uh, when they deny it to their countrymen. Uh, and and yet the, the ideals honored in the breach so often because the practice didn't match up to it, but the ideals on which uh, the United States was founded have inspired certainly Americans for almost 250 years and continue to do so and inspired a good part of the world because the ideals are the right ones. And this is a country founded on ideals. Um, but racism has always harmed America's standing in the world. I mean, in the 1960s, the Lyndon Johnson administration worried that 
um, in a contest between communism and de democratic capitalism countries in what they then called the third world, which were trying to decide what direction would go to go, would look at the images of black people being, uh, you know, unable to vote or set upon by dogs and fire hoses in the American South and say, well, if that's freedom and democracy, give me the other version of political system. Um, again, and, and that actually was just something of a catalyst um, for pushing the civil rights movement. The United States has made a lot of progress, uh, to say the least, uh, over its history, but it's still got a very long way to go. And um, in national security terms, it's natural for us to think about, you know, protests overseas in Hong Kong or, or Tahrir Square or Tiananmen Square more frequently than we think of protests in Lafayette Square in Washington, D.C. or or, you know, human rights abroad rather than civil rights at home. Um, and this is th with these protests, I really do think this is different than what has come before. You know, there's been protests before. There's been, um, you know, the continuation of, of racial problems and, and systemic racism in the United States. But I really think this is a wake up call. Um, you know, certainly this is happening around the world. But when you have uh, protests in 400 American cities in all 50 states, you know, ranging from, you know, just very diverse groups. And you look at what they're really calling for, an acknowledgement that black lives matter. They're not saying that other lives don't matter. They're saying black lives haven't mattered as much as they should in the past at the hands of police and others, and that we should acknowledge that black lives matter. I, you know, they, they want an end to systemic racism. They want an end to police brutality. It's pretty hard to not be supportive of those goals. One, because they're just kind of intrinsic to the kind of respect and dignity we should show to our fellow people. But two, this is entirely consonant with the ideals the United States was founded on. And so this is our ever, you know, evolving attempts to try to bring our practice in line with the ideals, which we're never going to get perfect, but we can become more perfect. This is the whole idea of having not a perfect union, but a more perfect union. And so, you know, I, I think everything from kind of the micro level to the way individuals and organizations are rethinking you know, what it means to be diverse uh, and inclusive, how they think about the role of race in society, all the way through to national level policies. Like, you know, there's uh, legislation being debated now on, you know, restrictions on police and, and resourcing and all these other kinds of things. I think all of those things should be thought anew now with this aim of, of saying, hey, let's use this gigantic wake up call and the expressed uh, you know, outrage that so many have shown at the death of George Floyd and try to transform this into something where we will reduce, if not eliminate systemic racism in our society, actually treat people as equals, actually have a future uh, that is better than the past and actually make forward progress on the racial uh, set of issues, which is no easy task. But you know, really, I think there's an opportunity now that has not been present probably since the 1960s. I think, um, well, thank you, Richard. I, th I think that's a an important answer and an important message also for us here in Europe to hear, because I think what it kind of reinforces or what it, what it shows is that, you know, 
addressing these issues or or talking about these issues isn't about you know being un-American or anything like that. But in at least in my view, it's 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 quite the opposite. It, it's really holding America to a high standard and believing that America is that it America could and that America should be a force for for good, um, both at home um, and abroad. Yeah, and I think here too, you know, the protests that are happening in Europe um, are rightly saying that Black Lives Matter in the United States, but they matter in Europe too. And and I don't think that should be lost. Um, you know, I've spent a good deal of time over the years in Europe, and you know, depending on where you are and who you're talking to, um, it's got its own racial problems. And if this can be a wake up call for a more, you know, civilized, enlightened. Um, approach, not just by those of us in the United States, but, you know, across Europe, then that would be a very good thing. I, I think Europe's got some soul searching to do on this, too. Yeah, um, that's that's um, f- for sure. Uh, that's that's a, that's an important message to to carry with us as well. Obviously, we may have different histories, but but the fact, you know, remains that racism and inequality and discrimination exists. Um, uh, here as well as in the United States, as it does, unfortunately, in many other countries. Um, and we ought to see what we can do uh, in our societies uh, to to really try to drive the change for the um, the kind of society that we want to that we want to live in. Um, so you're absolutely right, um, Richard. Um, I um, I can see that we've already gone over what I promised you would be 25 minutes. Um, it's been so nice to to speak to you. I've learned a lot. I'm sure that our listeners have, and I'm I'm so happy that you wanted to to join us for this conversation. Um, you've always been an inspiration to me, and I know many others. So so thank you so much for this. Well, thank you for having me. It's a real pleasure and it's an honor. Uh, and if anyone um, is uh, is still listening at this point in the podcast, um, please mark my words that I would like to see Axel in person um, at some point, as they say these days. <laughs> when will, we will, will, will I get a beer and a chili dog? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, we'll go to. All right. So when you come to Washington, we're going to hit another Washington Nationals game. And if I make it over to, you know, your part, then we'll go to a, I would say soccer game, but a football game, as they say. A football game. Yeah. Uh, and at that point, people will have listened to this and you will be you will be famous in Sweden. How about there you, that? There you go. I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> so we'll have plenty of cause for celebration. Exactly. Exactly. All right. Thanks a ton. Thank you so much, Richard. And I look forward to speaking to you soon. Yep. Bye.